0: Science and technology are an increasingly large part of our lives. We take a look at the interface between science and history, economics, philosophy, ethics, religion, and culture. That's Spark Dialogue Podcast, where it all comes together. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. Imagine you are a farmer in Bangladesh. Year after year, you have lost entire crops of eggplant to pests. When you spray them with pesticides, you only get sick. This is the story of Mohamed Milan Mia. Or you are a farmer in Tanzania. Record-breaking heat and drought have killed off your crops, and you lost everything. This is the story of Selma Nushwagi, who lost her entire crop of maize during record-breaking heat caused by climate change. Do these farmers have hope? Today our guest is Dr. Sarah Evanja. Sarah is a director for the Alliance of Science, based at Cornell University. Sarah is here to talk about GMOs, or genetically modified organisms. So welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's great to be here. Let's begin by talking about the situation that farmers are dealing with in the developing world. It's very different in these countries than it is in the United States, for instance, or in Europe. What kind of issues are these farmers dealing with on a day-to-day basis?
1: Yeah. So I think farmers all around the world uh, face enormous challenges And certainly in the developing world, a lot of those challenges are even more extreme. So, for example, we have challenges around equality, uh, women farmers not having access to credit, uh, farmers not having access to improved seeds, um, not having access to the inputs that they need to grow uh, crops effectively. The challenges are so much greater across the developing world. Certainly farmers everywhere in the world are some of the people who are dealing most intimately with the devastating impacts of climate change. Whether you're talking about citrus growers in Florida that have been devastated by hurricane damage, or whether you're talking about maize farmers across sub-Saharan Africa who are dealing with record-breaking heat and persistent drought, farmers are on the front lines uh, when it comes to the changing climate. So, We met a farmer named Selma Nujwagi in Tanzania when we were there a couple of years ago. And Selma and her husband, Saeed, they grow a very modest maize crop of about two acres each year. And they have to invest about 300 U.S. dollars in essentially procuring the the seed and the land to grow that maize crop. And $300 might not sound like a lot to you or I, uh, but in Tanzania, that's over half of the average annual income. This is a country where over 75% of the population is living uh, below the, the poverty line. And so when Selma and Saeed, for the second year in a row, lost their entire maize crop due to record-breaking heat and persistent drought, that has devastating Impact. So that means zero return on that investment, that very significant $300 investment. It means nothing to eat at home and nothing to sell in the market. So when that happens, farmers like Selma have to go and seek off farm employment and take on additional jobs. She's uh, in this case making mud paddy bricks to sell in the local marketplace. Mm So when we think about farmers like Selma and Saeed, and what will life look like for them 5, 10, 20 years down the road if they're already dealing with such devastation due to climate change?
0: The situation that you talked about in Tanzania, the extreme heat and the extreme drought, these are all effects of climate change then that we haven't seen before? That's right. These are, you know, this erratic rainfall, for example. I mean, in many countries,
1: the rainfall is very predictable. The whole agricultural production system is arranged around that very predictable rainfall. And what we're seeing in countries around the world is that rains aren't coming uh, when they used to. And they come uh, at different frequencies, in different quantities. That's been devastating for farmers around the world. The challenge that we face is that we have to feed the nine plus 10 billion people who are going to inhabit the earth in 2050. And at the same time, we have to ensure that our global temperature doesn't increase by more than two degrees, that we um, are mitigating the effects of climate change. And this is a particularly big challenge because agriculture is a major contributor to climate change. So by some estimates, it contributes about 33% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, in our country, it contributes about 75% of nitric oxide emissions. It's a major driver of deforestation and of global mm-hmm. topsoil loss. And not only is it a very thirsty process consuming a lot of water, but it also pollutes our waterways. And so, you know, we can't live without agriculture. We need to feed the many, but we need better tools to do it in a way that doesn't have such devastating impacts on the climate. Unfortunately, fortunately, biotechnology and, and other innovations uh, help us to do
0: agriculture in a much uh, cleaner and greener way. Right. So one of these tools that we're going to talk about today is a genetically modified organism or a GMO. So what exactly is a GMO?
1: Right. So scientists don't like the term GMO because it doesn't really mean much for us. A genetically modified organism, well, we're all genetically modified organisms, and humans <laughs> have been modifying uh, organisms around them uh since the dawn of agriculture and prior to that. So every time we make a a cross between two plants, we're essentially modifying the genome that that results. But what people are usually referring to when they say uh, GMOs or genetically modified organisms is um, an organism that a plant or an animal that's been bred using this very specific uh, plant breeding tool of biotechnology We call it sometimes genetic engineering or biotechnology. Sometimes we call it transgenesis. Um, But these are all terms that aren't nearly as popular and widespread as as so-called GMOs. But essentially what we're doing when we use the tools of biotechnology, specifically the tools of recombinant DNA technology, is taking a sequence from one organism. It might be a close relative or it might be a less close relative and we move that small piece of DNA very strategically
0: and deliberately into the genome of a recipient plant or animal. How do you do this? <laughs> How do you find the exact piece of DNA that you want to move from one organism to another?
1: Well, today, many organisms have been sequenced. And so we know uh, the sequences of particular genes, and we can use these neat little enzymes that allow us to sort of essentially cleave and cut out base pairs from one genome and move it into the other. So this is technology that was developed in the 1970s. A number of different innovations from the seventies through the eighties
0: have allowed us to engineer plants in a
1: very smart and well-defined way.
0: Okay. What kind of crops are GMOs found in nowadays? If you were going to the grocery store, would you see a lot of GMOs? No, which might
1: surprise you. So if we think about these tools, we are now you know, over 20 years uh, since the first commercialized GM crops have become available. And there are very few crops that are actually modified that are on the market. So if you look at the history, we have 12 crops, only 12 crops that have been genetically modified and been made commercially available. We go to the marketplace today and we see non-GMO on all kinds of things, oregano, right. <laughs> water, salt, uh, pe- frozen pizza, macaroni and cheese, Cheerios. Most of these crops that are contained in those products are not genetically modified. Needless to say, you can never genetically modify salt or water because there's no DNA. There. <laughs> right? So there's been a lot of marketing, that really has no basis in science. So there's 12 crops that have been genetically modified that are available somewhere in the world on the market. But if you look at the crops that dominate, if you look at all of the GMOs that are being planted out there in the world today, 50% of the GMOs planted in the world today are soybeans. And Mm -hmm. then 30% is maize or corn as we call it in, in the US. And then if you add cotton, you get up to 95% of all GM crops. And then you add the 4% of canola, you get up to 99%. So 99% of all GMOs are just four crops, which means that the majority of what we eat and the majority of the crops that are important to people around the world have not actually benefited from this tool. But if we go back to you know, where Selma lives in Tanzania, they say in Tanzania, you haven't eaten unless you've had your corn, right? So uh, it's an essential part of every meal. And if farmers like Selma don't have access to that very important staple, um, it's as if they haven't eaten. So we talked a little bit about the, devastating conditions in Tanzania, the heat and the drought that farmers are suffering there. But there is a a glimmer of hope. So a couple of years ago, in September of 2016, Tanzania planted its first ever field trial of a genetically engineered crop. And this was a special kind of maize called WEMA, which stands for Water Efficient Maize for Africa. And this is a a maize that's been engineered to contain a single uh, gene from a bacterium that renders it more water efficient and therefore drought tolerant. And when we visited this field trial, what we saw uh, was a a lovely maize crop that was doing quite well under those same drought conditions that had devastated farmers like Salma and Said. So this is a really promising technology that is being developed. Countries like South Africa are already benefiting from Wayma maize. South Africa is a country that has already adopted biotech crops, and farmers are already benefiting from being able to grow these advanced uh, crops. So there's hope for farmers like Selma who are dealing with climate change. And if the political environments and the, the social pressures can, can decrease in intensity, then it's my hope that farmers like Selma will one day be able to access this water-efficient maize for Africa that's really meant to benefit smallholder farmers like her.
0: It's also my understanding that a lot of indigenous foods will also benefit from some sort of science-based agriculture. So things like, I think, cowpea and bananas and beans, cassava, all these are indigenous foods for various parts of the either South America or Africa. So how are these foods suffering and how can genetic modification possibly help them? Right. So there are so many... Amazing applications of biotechnology that are in the pipeline
1: and technologies, uh, crops that are being developed by public sector scientists at research institutions that are funded by the government uh, or are public research institutions like universities that really um, are meant to benefit smallholder farmers. So for example, in Nigeria, uh, where cowpea is a really important source of protein, they consider it the poor man's meat. And this cowpea is affected by insect pests and they've engineered the BT gene into the cowpea to protect it from insects. So not only is the plant protected from insects, but it also means that you don't have to spray insecticides. So it has a great environmental benefit as well as a health benefit for the people who consume cowpea there, of which there are are millions. Um, We have other cases in Uganda where they have uh, engineered banana to contain a gene from sweet pepper. They've moved that into banana to protect it from a devastating blight. And again, banana in Uganda, that's their main staple. Cooking banana is their main starchy staple. That's their their maize, if you will. That's their corn. That's their main staple part of their diet. They eat many times their weight each year in bananas in Uganda. And there's a couple of challenges there. There's the wilt that devastates banana and this engineered banana can can help protect it from wilt. But there's also the challenge that banana lacks a lot of micronutrients that people need. And so the more you can sort of biofortify staple crops that might be good sources of calories, but not good sources of micronutrients, the more you can make a robust package that will help uh, people stay healthy. And so in Uganda, not only are they engineering it to protect it from the disease, but they're also engineering it banana to contain provitamin A, which will help ensure that people have sufficient vitamin A in their diets. This is not unsimilar from the strategy that many people have heard about golden rice. So again, trying to introduce beta carotene provitamin A into another staple like rice so that people can get the vitamin A that they need while they're eating their known
0: staple. A lot of these science-based agriculture, I mean, you mentioned that It could help increase yield or make it more nutritious or increase drought tolerance. What are these main types of GMOs?
1: The tools of biotechnology, they really just are tools. This is the tool of plant breeding, right? And so in theory, you can introduce all kinds of traits. So you can imagine introducing traits that benefit farmers, like insect resistance, right? So that doesn't necessarily benefit a consumer directly, but it means that a farmer doesn't have to spray so many insecticides. So if we, if we go to Bangladesh, there was a beautiful story there where farmers uh, in 2014, the government had approved a genetically engineered eggplant that is resistant to a major pest there, the fruit and shoot borer. And so in 2014, the first 20 farmers had access to this technology and began growing it. And prior to growing this genetically engineered eggplant, they had to spray their eggplant twice a week sometimes as much as twice a day during times of heavy pest pressure. And so fast forward four years, there's now about 30,000 farmers uh, growing this eggplant and they are reporting 62% reduced insecticide use on average, which is tremendous. Some of them are reporting as high as 92% reduced pesticide use. So the environmental benefits of this technology are huge. And obviously no farmer wants to be exposed to those kinds of chemicals. So it has enormous health benefits for farmers and farming families. But perhaps most of all are the economic benefits. So Elizabeth, imagine if your income increased by sixfold. So if you do a little math problem and you write your adjusted gross annual income from last year on a piece of paper, and you multiply that number by six, look at that number and imagine how your life would be different if you made six times what you made last year.
0: Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people are imagining that right now. (laughs) And for you and I, that would be essentially a move from living
1: a comfortable life to living a life of excess wealth, right? But when you're making only $1,200 a year, just over $100 a month, perhaps, when that goes from $110 a month, say, to $660 a month, Life changes tremendously. And that's what farmers in Bangladesh are experiencing a six fold increase in their income because they have access to this technology. They don't need to buy as many insecticides. They don't need uh, to invest as much labor. And they're able to sell a product that they can market as pesticide free. And so to deny a farmer in Bangladesh access to a biotech product like BT Eggplant, to me, is, is, is immoral because the benefits that they attain are. Are are absolutely enormous. And imagine if you have a six-fold increase in your income, you're able to access healthcare now, you're able to diversify your diet. And what we see most importantly is that when people have more discretionary income, they're able to send their kids to school and to pay those school fees. And that, all the research
0: suggests, is the best way to break a poverty cycle. Yeah, and this this story with the eggplant is really interesting because, as you mentioned, these farmers were losing entire crops of eggplant to pests. And as you mentioned before, with the it parallels with the story in Africa as well, I mean, you can lose an entire year of income like this. And so, these BT eggplants—basically, how they work is they have the they have their DNA modified so that they're actually toxic to insects and caterpillars and butterflies, so they're not eaten by the pests anymore. So the farmers didn't have to spray excessive amount of pesticides on their crops anymore. This actually raises one issue that a lot of people have with GMOs, and that's the idea that you're actually changing the DNA of the plant itself to be poisonous to insects. What can you say to people to sort of kind of put their fears to rest that this isn't a bad thing?
1: <laughs> so agriculture is all about trade-offs, and there's no easy solutions, But what the BT gene does is it protects plants from a very narrow class of insects. So it doesn't affect all insects. It infects only a very narrow class. And so, yes, that narrow class of insects that devastates the crop are are essentially uh, not able to survive when they feed on the crop. But before we had BT eggplant, what farmers would do would be to spray a broad range of insecticides that kill everything in the field and affect human health. So you have to weigh the the pros and cons of each approach. And what we do know is that a lot of these very toxic insecticides that are being used on crops where you don't have access to BT technology, those insecticides are far worse for a a range of different kinds of organisms, including humans, than any, any perceived you know possible you know unknown 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 of a gm crop we know that those insecticides are unsafe for human health and when we talk to farmers in places like india where they've benefited tremendously from bt cotton and they have reduced their insecticide use by by a huge extent when we talk to them what they tell us is that since they've started growing bt cotton they uh, no longer have to use insecticides and as a result a lot of different kinds of plants and animals and organisms are returning to their fields. So we talked to one Indian farmer, Gurjeet Mann, who talked about how once more he could hear in his fields, the birds chirping and frogs and the buzzing of insects because he was no longer using those broad spectrum insecticides that essentially killed everything. Now he has BT technology that only impacts the devastating pests that he needs to control in his agricultural system.
0: Let's talk about another type of GMO, and that's one that has tolerance to uh, glyphosate, which is also known as Roundup. So the idea behind this GMO is that it has its DNA modified so that this herbicide, Roundup, doesn't kill the plant, and so that farmers can spray their fields very liberally with, with Roundup, kill the weeds, and their plant continues to live. So does this increase pesticide use then?
1: No, I mean, it, it, it increases perhaps the popularity of one herbicide, but it doesn't necessarily increase herbicide use. Uh, it, it just increases the, the, the one uh, being used in this particular system. I think what glyphosate, uh, the use of herbicide-tolerant crops has, the impact it has had, is that it's reduced the need for tilling, and that has promoted conservation agriculture.
0: So that's been a huge benefit and it is essentially helping restore soils. Okay, so for those of us who aren't farmers, how does tilling reduce weeds? You know,
1: if you're a smallholder farmer in in the developing world, you may um, hire labor, usually women and children, to pull your weeds. If you're a large- scale corn or soybean farmer in the midwest of this country, for example, you'll use uh, machinery to essentially go through your fields and, and pull up those weeds. And that, of course, means that you're burning fossil fuels, as well as essentially disturbing the soil, which releases greenhouse gases
0: from the soil. In this case, then, do you think that this might create a dependence of farmers on this one particular herbicide, in this case Roundup, and that they can't go other places for getting their herbicide. Is that a problem that we would have to worry about as well? Certainly, glyphosate-tolerant
1: crops have presented such advantages to farmers that their use is widespread and arguably overused. So we have, many people say, too many farmers depending on the same technology, and as a result, we see weeds that have become resistant to the effects of some of these herbicides. And that's Mm -hmm. a problem. But the solution to that problem is not to oppose biotechnology. The solution to that problem is to essentially fuel innovation and Mm -hmm. encourage more uh, innovators, whether they be in the public sector or the private sector to use this technology to innovate and continue to develop uh, solutions to these agricultural challenges
0: when doing the science based agriculture what happens if when trying to take the dna apart and put it in another crop what happens if something goes wrong or can it go wrong so biotechnology is really precise and it's very well
1: defined you can think about it as two decks of cards right you have a a red deck and a blue deck of cards And when you make a cross, you essentially shuffle those two decks of cards together and you have lots of blue cards and lots of red cards mixing together. And maybe all you wanted was the blue jack of diamonds to be inserted into that red deck, but you got all kinds of different blue cards to essentially go with it. And with biotechnology, what we can do is be much more deliberate and just take that blue jack of diamonds and move it into the deck of red cards. We know... Not only that we're only moving that single uh, piece of DNA, but we also know exactly where in the red deck we're inserting that card. And so it presents much less risk than traditional plant breeding, where you, you, you really don't know what you're moving around. Mm-hmm. And of course, once you develop a biotech product, it goes through all kinds of tests and is uh, regulated by different federal agencies to make sure that it's safe for humans and safe for the environment and doesn't pose any risk to the world we live in.
0: How are GMOs viewed then around the world? This term
1: has become a very familiar term to people in this country and all around the world. And people are cautious about what they don't understand. Um, But if you dig into what this is, it's just a tool of plant breeding. It's just a a way for plant breeders or animal breeders to develop uh, improved genetic material to produce Uh, new seeds that will give us the food that we need to eat. In this country, most of us aren't engaged in agriculture. Only 1.8% of the population is engaged in agriculture. And most of the applications of biotechnology present direct benefits to farmers. And consumers don't feel those benefits directly. And so it's easy, if you're well-fed like you and I, it's easy to oppose a technology that we don't reap any direct benefits from. But in the developing world, the percentage of people who are actually producing their own food is much higher, maybe 62%, maybe 70% of the population, depending on what country you're looking at, is engaged in the production of food. And so they uh, could be the direct beneficiaries of this technology. They're dealing with the challenges of, of agriculture, of which there are many. And so to date, we haven't seen a lot of applications of this technology that have direct, direct consumer benefits. And if consumers could understand the utility of this technology, I think that we would no longer have this ongoing conversation about you know whether GMOs were good or bad.
0: I'll just come out and say it like, are GMOs safe? Absolutely.
1: The science is clear. I mean, every reputable science based organization in the world has, has you know, issued their, their, their statement that the science behind the safety of GMOs is, is very clear. GMOs are safe for human health, and they're safe for the environment. And recently, the National Academies did yet another exhaustive review of the literature and came up with the same conclusion that they have come up with in the past and that every other science-based organization in the world has come up with. The science is very clear. So how do people test to see if GMOs are safe then? There's concerns that if you introduce a new protein or a new gene that will code for a protein, genes code for proteins, uh, into an organism, into a new type of food, that that protein could be an allergen. So imagine a scenario where you uh, have an attribute in something like a Brazil nut, and you want to introduce that into soybean to impart that attribute. So you take the gene from the Brazil nut and you move it into soybean, and then you realize that that attribute from Brazil nut could be an allergen and could be you know, part of what makes Brazil nuts allergenic. You test for these things and you look for signatures of allergens and you test them in, in other animal models to make sure that they'll be safe for human health.
0: So out of curiosity, has there ever been a GMO that later has been tested and people found, oh, this isn't safe and they pulled it from the market? So things never get to market that aren't safe. They usually
1: get discovered along the way, much earlier on, uh, long, long before they would ever uh, reach a consumer in a marketplace. So that story about the Brazil net is actually mm-hmm. one that,
0: you know, was pulled while in the research and development stage. Okay. Another interesting story is that the first GMO was actually insulin. Is that correct? This is a really interesting
1: case of an application of biotechnology. So almost everyone knows a diabetic, right? And diabetics are benefiting every day from genetically engineered insulin. So all of the insulin that diabetics use today is made using genetic engineering, and thank goodness, we have genetically engineered insulin to treat our diabetics. This is a wonderful application of biotechnology. Interestingly, people want technology in their medicine, right? We want our healthcare to be uh, as technologically advanced as, as possible. Uh, we want the latest advances. But when it comes to food, somehow we think that things that are old or heirloom are better, which isn't necessarily always the case, Right. Um, people don't want technology associated with their food, but they want technology associated with their medicine. So we haven't really seen a, a debate or any controversy around applications in medicine. And probably that also gets back to the utility question. I mean, when you are sick, you want a solution, and if the solution is you know developed using biotechnology, that's fine because you see great utility in getting that cure for your problem, right? But if you don't perceive a utility in the agricultural realm, and if you're well fed, you can afford to, to debate uh, whether a technology is, is good or bad. But in many parts of the world, they really can't afford these kinds of luxurious debates uh, where there's no basis in science
0: because people are hungry and they need better crops uh, and more food to feed those people. As far as sustainability and climate change, what kind of benefits do they offer versus traditional crops?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the reduced insecticide use we've already talked about, right? If we look at that, that map of all of the ways in which agriculture contributes to climate change, you know, we need agriculture to feed the many, to feed the nine plus 10 billion people who are going to live on, on this earth in 2050. But at the same time, agriculture is a major contributor to climate change. So we need, on the one hand, to feed the many, but at the same time, we need to mitigate the effects of climate change. And agriculture, by some estimates, contributes about 33% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, contributes about 75% of nitric oxide emissions in in the U.S. It's a major driver of deforestation and of global topsoil loss. And not only does it consume a lot of water, but it also pollutes our water. And so what biotechnology can do is to essentially, uh, it's one tool that can help us make agriculture greener. And if we look at what's in the pipeline today, there are applications of biotechnology today being used to address each and every one of those insults of agriculture on the environment that we just talked about. So we have efforts underway to engineer cereals like maize, for example, to produce their own nitrogen from the atmosphere so that we don't need to use nitrogen fertilizers, which also are a major contributor to the dead zones uh, caused by runoff. We have applications of biotechnology. There are researchers in China and Sweden who have developed rice that produces uh, fewer methane emissions. We have applications of biotechnology that um, can essentially conserve the soils. We talked about conservation agriculture So we don't need to till across all the agricultural lands and we can conserve the, the soil structure. We have applications of biotechnology that promote sustainable intensification so that we can grow more food using fewer resources, fewer inputs and less land so that we can spare more land for other purposes like conservation. And so on. So, I mean, if you look at all of the ways in which biotechnology can, it's, it's an important tool to be able to do agriculture in a much more sustainable, greener way, not to mention the dramatic reduction in pesticide use that's brought about by making plants that can essentially protect themselves from insects so that we don't need to use chemicals. If you identify as an environmentalist, you might ask yourself, how can I call myself an environmentalist? And oppose a technology that reduces pesticide use by 62%. Or how can you, on the one hand, uphold the scientific consensus around climate
0: change and deny the scientific consensus around the safety of GM crops? I did notice there were a lot of parallels in between the debate over climate change and the debate over GMOs.
1: That's right. And there's also a lot
0: of connections
1: between the debate over GMOs and the debate over vaccines. So a lot of the same right. groups that are raising concerns about vaccines are the same people who are raising concerns about GMOs.
0: And the science is very clear in both areas. You brought up several times, living in, in the United States or living in Europe, we're very, very removed from farming. But yet we're all really connected. And I, I was thinking about this law that there was in I think it was in Vermont where they require the labeling of foods as GMOs. And you know, we might not think much of this that it just is helping us to be educated where our food comes from. And that's certainly a good thing. But I also wonder if it has some unintended consequences as well, whereas people are less likely to buy this food and then this food is coming from a developing country or a third world country and then it hurts the farmers there.
1: So I think that you're right that the decisions we make in our country and our social circles absolutely do have ripple effects and impact on the developing world. So I can go to my supermarket this evening after work and I'll be confronted and I'll have the opportunity to make all kinds of different choices because I live in a place where food is plentiful and choices abound. But if I choose a product that is being marketed to me as non-GMO, then I'm perpetuating this notion that there's something wrong with GMOs. The science clearly says there's nothing wrong with GMOs. And that discourse around GMOs is happening here in this country, is heard around the world. And so the choices that I make in the supermarket
0: here in the U.S. absolutely have broader societal impact. And if they're not educated about it, they don't know what a GMO is, they don't know that if it's safe then that's the first step i think is to solving this problem
1: yeah i mean a lot of people like to buy organic food and organic produce because they've heard that there's fewer pesticides used on on organic produce and you know depending on what crop you're talking about that may or may not be true but gmos that reduce pesticide use really should be the highest form of organic if you can use biotechnology to develop a crop that no longer needs chemical inputs because it, it protects itself, that to me is the ultimate
0: organic food. At Cornell, at the Alliance for Sciences where you work, you have a fellowship program. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure.
1: So we have uh, what we call the Global Leadership Fellows Program, where we bring champions uh, here together from around the world to essentially you know, hone their leadership skills and work as a community To try to inspire evidence based decision making in agriculture so that people around the world have access to the innovations that they need to both feed the world while at the same time minimizing agriculture's impact on the environment. And our fellows come from all walks of life in all corners of the world. Um, They might be, you know, we've had a Catholic priest, we've had uh, lawyers, we've had guitar players. We've had uh, journalists, but they share in common this passion for ensuring choice and access to innovations that are going to help solve some of these enormous challenges in agriculture. If you want to learn more about the Alliance for Science, you can look us up online at allianceforscience.cornell.edu. And we're on all the usual social media channels at Science Ally. And you can enjoy some of our videos on our YouTube channel.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you,
1: Elizabeth. It's really been a pleasure to join Spark Dialogue. Thanks.
0: This is Elizabeth Fernandez for Spark Dialogue Podcast. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to you joining us again in two weeks for another episode. If you're interested in subscribing to the podcast, you can find us on many of your favorite podcast repositories, such as Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. And remember, podcasts are free, so one way you could give back is to leave a rating or tell your friends. You can find out how to subscribe or how to rate at sparkdialogue.com slash how dash two dash subscribe. Also, check us out on facebook.com slash sparkdialog or on Twitter at sparkdialogue, as well as Pinterest or on the web at sparkdialog.com. As always, thanks for listening.